Hello and welcome to Extrapolator. This is the eighth and final episode in this first season, and it's the last solo episode that I've planned, at least for a while. I'm your host, Jeff Allen, and today I'm talking about optimistic nihilism, sometimes called sunny nihilism. This is an overarching view of reality, and the idea is quite simple. Reality is meaningless, but that's kind of a nice thing. The structure of this argument is also very straightforward. Step 1. Nihilism. Reality is inherently meaningless. Step 2. Optimism. That has positive implications for human life and human flourishing. I have already argued for step 1, nihilism, as a core part of my conclusion in episode 6. I argued that meaning is frame-dependent, residing within the frame of each organism or system, or within the shared frame of a cultural narrative. And so, from a frame-independent perspective, reality itself is inherently meaningless, and any meaning that does exist is only found within subjective or intersubjective frames not out there in objective reality. And that's nihilism, in a nutshell. Nihilism is the view that there is no meaning outside of human minds. The next issue, for step two, involves some extrapolation. What does nihilism imply? How should we interpret this fact that reality is inherently meaningless? Moreover, would the opposite of nihilism some kind of prescribed meaning, be better or worse. Nihilism is often interpreted with pessimism, not with optimism. The line from Friedrich Nietzsche goes, life is meaningless, therefore there's no point. Or, life is absurd, therefore there's no point. It's naught but despair. This is also the undergrad philosophy meme that you'll find on Reddit. You know, uh, studying existential philosophy made me despair over the meaninglessness of human existence, and so on. There is nothing more boring than someone reading out a meme without showing it to you. And yet, here I go. (laughs) One nihilism meme is titled, How to Make Sushi. First, roll your salmon in rice. Then, contemplate your meaningless existence. Think about your mortality. Remember that you will be nothing but dust floating for billions of years. The final image shows the human curled up in a ball under the table. Needless to say, the sushi ingredients lie scattered on the surface, salmon and rice and seaweed abandoned in the throes of an existential crisis. Fair enough, it might be somewhat of a shock to the system when we come to the philosophical realisation that meaning is not externally dictated we might feel justifiably at sea, with nowhere to anchor. Existential nihilism, as expressed by French philosophers Albert Camus or Jean-Paul Sartre, concludes that human life has no intrinsic meaning. And in some people, this motivates a pessimistic nihilism. Humans are insignificant and our existence is absurd. Therefore, despair. Let's step back for a moment What on earth are these pessimists lamenting? What is the preferable or superior arrangement that they are longing for? 
would they really prefer if humans were significant? If meaning was externally dictated? Our naive intuitions might say that nihilism is scary, but the alternative is far worse. Imagine having to live your life by some externally prescribed set of rules, whether prescribed by God or aliens or some vague natural order of things. Our instinct, our naive instinct, is to expect external conditions for constructing meaning. Almost all cultures in history have had some religious story about these rules for constructing meaning. These stories took wildly different forms, you know, solo gods with lists of commandments, panels of gods, Romans or Greeks, reincarnation, and even vague ideas of chi, some life force that flows through all living beings. It may seem like these wildly haphazard claims have nothing in common, but they have one thing in common. They all claim some external standard for meaning. They all say meaning exists and it is attainable or measurable or valued according to X, Y, and Z. Nihilism makes quite the opposite claim, that meaning does not exist externally, or at least that meaning is not concretely attainable or measurable or valued according to any X, Y, or Z. In fact, this idea is found in Buddhism, one of the ancient world religions, but it is an outlier compared with other dominant religions. So we return to the question, which option is preferable? Option A, some externally dictated conditions, X, Y, and Z, for attaining meaning. Or option B, no externally dictated conditions, no X, Y, or Z for attaining meaning. The insight of the optimistic nihilist is to recognize that option B is actually preferable. When we are released from option A, we become radically free to define existence on our own terms. And when we are left to our own devices, we are radically empowered to take responsibility for our own lives. Every act, every moon landing or murder or Harry Potter movie marathon, is equally possible and permissible. The outcome is completely at the mercy of human activities. These matters are decided internally by humans and not externally. Of course, there are physical limitations arising from biology and physics. Our freedom does not include a freedom to fly like an eagle. Nonetheless, within the bounds of the laws of physics, every possibility is on the menu. We can pursue artificial flight and in vitro fertilization and detonate as many nuclear bombs as we like without any external repercussions. Crucially, this makes the internal repercussions all the more salient. Since no external force has any interest in our actions, there is nothing but internal relevance and this changes our entire mindset. We must look inwards inside of human life and animal life and Earth's ecosystem, to the seat of any and all moral relevance. Of course, this internal view now includes the odd bit of junk that we managed to propel into space, and at some stage this might become a hazard. But at its core, the internal view involves looking with appreciation and consideration at the material conditions of the Earth, 
since nothing else matters. Once we forget those other stories and turn away from solo gods and panels of gods and vague life forces, the conditions of our own planet are brought into focus. We look with attention and consideration and appreciation. And that is the crux. Stories about externally dictated meaning are distracting. We can end up walking around with our head in the clouds, worrying about whether unbaptized babies go to heaven, or whether we should genetically engineer carrots because maybe God didn't want them to be longer than 27 centimetres. Or what other rules we could be breaking. Krishna says, I can't have steak, and Allah says, I can't have bacon, and Yahweh says, sorry boys, but the foreskin has to go. This act of scrabbling for external rules is highly distracting and misleading. There is no prescriptive X, Y, and Z, and we end up completely missing the point. Instead, when we take the internal view, we become pleasantly focused on the real issues at stake in the enterprise known as life on Earth. So perhaps option B is preferable. Perhaps we should view nihilism with optimism rather than pessimism. This idea was summed up nicely by Wendy Siffert in a Guardian article. Quote, Once you make peace with just being a lump of meat on a rock, you can stop stressing and appreciate the rock itself. This is similarly expressed in a YouTube video on optimistic nihilism by the Korsgesagt channel. Quote, We are truly free in a universe-sized playground. So far, I've at least argued that optimistic nihilism is better than pessimistic nihilism. When we reflect on the implications of nihilism, there are certainly grounds for optimism instead of pessimism. But what does this optimism entail? When we really do adopt an optimistic frame of mind, what view of the universe follows? In my view, Optimistic nihilism, in a strictly scientific setting, involves a tone of wonder for nature or evolution. It may be surprising, but this optimistic outlook is often found in scientists and cosmologists and evolutionary biologists. I'm thinking of figures like Neil deGrasse Tyson, Brian Cox, Carl Sagan and Richard Dawkins. Dawkins, as a famous atheist, makes a very terrestrial objection to religion, that the marvels of the biological and physical world are far more wonderful than any supernatural stories or myths about gods. This line of reasoning is very persuasive. It is somewhat a theistic trope to point to the human eye and say, look at the incredible complexity of the human eye. How could you explain that without some intelligent creator? The theistic answer is that there must be a creator, which is a rather wonderful extrapolation, in their opinion. But the atheistic answer, arguably, is more wonderful. The alternative answer, that the eye evolved in tiny increments from more primitive light detectors and fish and reptiles and birds, is kind of bloody amazing when you stop to think about it. And it's supported by evidence, but we're not climbing back aboard that train right now. I'm not arguing for atheism today. Rather, I'm arguing that the atheistic worldview, once accepted, is more marvellous and wonderful than any religious explanation. 
The fact that human beings do exist with complex eyes and complex social structures and mammalian emotions like love and maternal bonding. These faculties are far more marvellous if they evolved by mere contingency, without any external guidance. Experiencing love in an atheistic world is truly awe-inspiring. Such are the marvels of the boldly biological and physical world. David Hume is another philosopher who had a distinctly physicalist and terrestrial worldview, and yet marvelled at the physical world. In an inquiry concerning human understanding, Hume marvels at the human constitution. We're so amazingly suited and adapted and bespoke for our environment and world. We have powerful instinctual abilities, terrestrial abilities, which allow us to navigate our specific world with incredible efficiency. As Hume puts it, nature taught us the use of our limbs and implanted in us an instinct. We take our instincts for granted, but they are highly adapted and highly efficient and pretty bloody awe-inspiring when you stop to think about them. Hume's wider argument is about our ability to infer causes and effects. We see these causal connections all around us, and they're essential to our survival. He writes that it was the ordinary wisdom of nature to secure so necessary an act of the mind by some instinct or mechanical tendency. And this instinct arises at the first appearance of life and thought, that is, from our earliest childhood and infancy. It is pretty amazing that our bodies and brains have adapted to enable us to interpret and construct our environment in such a complex way. From a strictly physicalist standpoint, this is pretty marvellous. Hume goes on to talk about what we know versus what we are ignorant of. We interpret the world only as we need to, not necessarily as the world actually is. This argument may be very reminiscent of previous extrapolator episodes. I'm very fond of this line of reasoning, that our senses construct what is useful rather than what is true. And that is one reason why we should trust the impersonal instruments of science over and above the voodoo of our intuitions, which are calibrated with a very different evolutionary objective in mind. This argument and many other sensible and physicalist claims can be traced back to Hume. He has long been one of my favourite philosophers, and he seems to be an endless dispensary of sensible insights. When it comes to cause and effect, Hume argues that we infer causal relationships because they are useful, not because they are true. He believes that these causal connections do not exist out there, but are rather inferred and constructed by human minds to aid our survival. This is the key distinction between perceiving what is useful and perceiving what is true. Nature taught us the use of our limbs, but nature did not give us knowledge of the muscles and the nerves. We can drink a glass of water without any propositional knowledge about the esophagus. So, in fact, our biology leaves us ignorant of the powers and forces that animate the physical world. In Hume's rather poetic terms, nature has kept us at a great distance from all her secrets. The takeaway from all of this 
is the tone of awe and wonder that comes from a physicalist view of human life and the human body. It is indeed marvellous that humans have such complex and adaptive instincts. And this fact is all the more marvellous in the absence of a creator or any external mandate. There is also a rather astonishing fact about what we have evolved to know and what we have not evolved to know. We can throw a spear at a target without any knowledge of biceps and deltoids and parabolas. Thankfully, modern science is the exact framework that allows us to step outside of our biology, to study muscles and mathematics in a way that our survival did not require. When Hume wrote in 1748 that nature has kept us at a great distance from all her secrets, this was certainly true from an evolutionary perspective. Our biology does not directly enable us to latch on to regularities about space-time or quantum mechanics. But we may come closer to that persistent nature and latch on to such facts using the instruments and methods of modern science. So what does optimistic nihilism entail? Or what frame of mind does it inspire? I would sum up the entire optimistic nihilistic worldview using just one word terrestrial. Optimistic nihilism involves a terrestrial focus and a terrestrial interest in the material conditions of planet Earth as being the only ones that matter, to human beings at least. This terrestrial outlook is the very opposite of celestial or spiritual. It turns attention away from gods and destiny and, yes, astrology, and towards human biology, and animal biology, and earthly biology. This has an almost belittling effect of narrowing and specifying. Everything is so acutely specific to our environment and ecosystem and physics. But that's the beauty. The specificity, the uniqueness, the improbability of everything that we find, from pheromone trails in ants to mammalian love in humans. And paradoxically, this reveals terrestrial beauty to be rather grand, and not belittled. In highlighting our tiny slice of earthly existence, this act of narrowing reveals something rather expansive and significant. It is special only because it is narrow and specific and improbable. Something more ubiquitous and commonplace would have far less value. And our loneliness as the only sentient creatures for light years around, floating through cold and empty space, that rather forces us to turn our attention inwards. If nothing matters objectively, then anything we choose can matter to us, on a subjective or intersubjective basis. And we had better look after each other, because no one else will. In the spirit of being meta, we must ask, what is the genre of this claim about optimistic nihilism? It could be easy to forget that we're doing analytic philosophy at all, since we have drifted off in a rather continental direction, making somewhat woolly claims about meaning and value. So let's restore some of the rigour. In truth, the claim is very hard to stipulate or prove, per se. When we say reality is meaningless, but that's kind of a nice thing, there is no deductive or even inductive proof to say that it certainly is a nice thing, 
and that we should interpret nihilism with optimism as opposed to pessimism. Sure, we can point to the material differences in terms of human suffering and flourishing, but it does come down to a tricky matter of interpretation. So far, I have argued that optimistic nihilism is more cogent than pessimistic nihilism, because the freedom from external mandates has a positive influence on human flourishing. We have greater freedom and can construct more fulfilling basis for meaning, since we are free from any externally prescribed rules. I have also outlined the spirit of optimistic nihilism, which is encapsulated by the word terrestrial. Terrestrial cohabitation, terrestrial digestion and offspring and bonding, terrestrial awe. But this outlook of optimism is more of an attitude than a proof. There is no QED to say that optimistic nihilism is a superior way of seeing the world. Other attitudes of pessimism or apathy or religious fundamentalism may do just fine for the task of getting by in life. This is a classic criticism by Rudolf Carnap, that some types of philosophy, especially metaphysics, are merely expressions of attitude. Surely, if these claims are just whims, lacking any rigour, then they do not qualify as analytic philosophy. Carnap believed that metaphysical claims are meaningless, just expressions of the general attitude of a person towards life. So the challenge here is to show that our claims are more than mere attitudes, more rigorous than statements like, ice cream is nice, and so deserving of a philosophical status. In the case of metaphysics, I have already argued in episode 1 and throughout later episodes that we can extrapolate to metaphysical claims, if we start from our best empirical theories and carefully trace a dotted line outwards. So I won't reopen my case for extrapolation. The challenge for optimistic nihilism is harder to overcome. Is this just an expression of an attitude towards life? If so, it's probably more suited to poetry than philosophy. The answer, I think, is both yes and no. It is more like an attitude in that it is not formalizable, but it can still be rationally and systematically grounded and corroborated by evidence. Claim one, that reality is inherently meaningless, this is certainly a systematic claim, based on physics and biology and sensory motor systems. Claim two, that we should be optimists, it's less systematic. I think we can classify the second claim, optimism over pessimism, in relation to the is-ought distinction. This distinction between is versus ought was originally formulated by Hume in his A Treatise of Human Nature, and today it's also referred to as the distinction between facts and values, or the descriptive versus the prescriptive. The central problem identified by Hume involves the inference from what is to what ought to be. There is nothing in descriptive language, like is, that justifies prescriptive language, like ought. Just because an apple is nutritious, it doesn't mean that we ought to eat one. So much moral reasoning starts with descriptive statements about nutrition or pain or social structures and then leaps to prescriptive statements about what we should eat or how we should treat one another or what political views we should hold. 
from a theoretical, philosophical perspective, these leaps from is to ought seem impossible to justify. There is nothing in the constitution of apples, or the neurochemical event of pain, or the number of elected representatives, which says that we ought to do anything. From a more radical perspective, even an act of murder, descriptively, is just atoms interacting with atoms. The fact that these atoms compose a victim and a perpetrator and a knife doesn't change the purely descriptive account of the physical processes involved. In this language, there is nothing that can say whether the act is good or bad, worthy of praise or blame. An act of murder, descriptively, is no different from petting a dog or stepping onto a train. It's just a physical event, and there is nothing prescriptive or normative made necessary by its constitution to say anything about good or bad or otherwise. This is the most radical reframing of the fact that reality is inherently meaningless. Reality exists only at the descriptive level, only in terms of physical processes, which, by definition, have no prescriptive character, no meaning, no value, no ought. And the irony for our present argument is that step one radically undermines step two. Step one is the claim that reality is inherently meaningless. Reality exists only at a descriptive level, which rules out any prescriptive character or meaning. Step two is a prescriptive claim, that we ought to view the meaninglessness of reality as useful or beneficial or nice, as opposed to depressing. And the irony is, if step one is successful, it makes step two impossible. If step one proves that reality is not prescriptive, then we are in no position to make a prescriptive claim in step two about optimism over pessimism. And that's that. Well, yes, I stand by that reasoning from a purely theoretical perspective, but life is not always the same as theory. Life is about practice and pragmatics. Pragmatic constraints often contradict and supersede pure theory, and perhaps we can find some solution in that way. Franz de Waal, the Dutch primatologist I mentioned a few episodes back, has a novel way of looking at morality and meta-ethics. Meta-ethics often involves a top-down justification of moral rules. Philosophers argue from God, or from reason, or from science, and argue top-down to explain how our morality is drawn from higher, overarching principles. This top-down approach tries to argue why our morality is correct, or at least salient, from these higher-level principles. But Franz de Waal rejects this top-down approach in favour of a bottom-up approach. The bottom-up rationale takes a pragmatic view. We don't need to show that morality is systematically correct. Rather, it only has to be useful. If we can demonstrate the pragmatic, evolutionary purpose of morality, then it is justified by utility and practice, rather than by some theoretical principle. Duval looks for evidence of normativity in other animals, cases where other animals impose some norm of behaviour to correct deviations from an ideal state. 
Organisms, of course, pursue individual outcomes, like survival and reproduction. And some animals also build structures, like a beaver's dam, a spider's web, and a bird's nest. And they appear to maintain a norm about how these structures ought to look. Building to achieve that norm, and repairing to correct deviations from that norm. This is dangerous territory, since we don't want to commit the naturalistic fallacy. We don't want to conclude that, just because a bird does build a nest, that it should build a nest. There is nothing necessarily or inherently correct in the way that nature happens to be. It is all the result of evolution and contingent factors. The naturalistic fallacy takes us back to my rant from episode 3, where I tried to cancel the word natural. We have this impulse to view nature as some natural order, and any forces that change the natural order, like pollution or genetic modification, are abominations. But this makes the grave mistake of forgetting that there was nothing inherently correct about the way that nature happened to be in the first place. Just because almonds evolved to be bitter and poisonous to humans, it doesn't mean that they ought to be that way. There is nothing inherently correct about that state, since it is just the product of evolution and other contingencies. And indeed, we have domesticated almonds and wheat and almost all fruits to some degree to make them more digestible and delicious for human beings. We do not want to commit the naturalistic fallacy of thinking that the way that nature is, is the way that it should be. End of rant. So back to the beaver's dam. Individual beavers do appear to build dams under some kind of normativity. They build to achieve the norm of how the dam should look, and they repair to correct deviations from the norm. What does this mean for normativity in general? We have to be very careful with our answer. It does not mean that dams should look the way that they do, simply because beavers strive to build them in a certain way. That is the naturalistic fallacy, saying that beavers ought to build dams simply because they do. This is an attempt at top-down justification. Instead, arguing bottom-up, we can simply say that beavers impose some norms around the structure and appearance of dams, and we can be indifferent as to the content of those norms. We're not trying to justify their specific norms about dams as the only ones that are correct. Rather, we simply recognise that they impose some norms, that their behaviour is normative. This is a pragmatic, bottom-up recognition that norms are useful, and they're imposed by many other animals. So much for individual norms. Other animals also impose group norms. Social norms that seek to impose some ideal social state, and correct behaviour that deviates from that state. Deval gives many examples from dogs and rhesus monkeys and chimpanzees. For example, when animals cooperate, there is an expectation of shared rewards, and when they do not receive equal rewards, the animal who has been cheated protests. This has been captured in a famous video clip. Two chimpanzees perform an equal task, one is given a grape and the other is given a cucumber. The one who gets the cucumber protests vehemently and throws the cucumber back in the researcher's face. These reactions of protest are evidence for the norm of fairness and cooperation, and such behaviours seek to correct a perceived deviation from this norm. Reconciliation after conflict 
is also widely documented in chimpanzees. There is a norm of harmony and close relationship between group members, and when there has been a deviation through physical conflict, the chimps must reconcile by kissing or embracing. And these reconciliations are sometimes mediated by a third party. An older female chimp who has good social standing and can command the attention of both parties. These observations are amazing, but in truth, they should hardly surprise us. Chimps are highly social animals, just like us. And in order to live in social groups, there must be norms enabling cohabitation and harmony. And here we get to the bottom-up justification of morality. The norms that chimpanzees maintain around cooperation, sharing rewards and reconciliation after fights, they do not need to be theoretically justified as the correct moral standards from any higher order principles. Instead, they need only be useful. This is pragmatism over theory. The reasons that human beings have certain norms is not because they are abstractly justifiable as superior to other moral systems. We simply have them because they are useful. There is an evolutionary explanation for normative behavior, and it explains why beavers and dogs and monkeys and chimpanzees all impose norms of behavior on themselves and on others. Does this bottom-up explanation actually get us anywhere? Most philosophers set out for a top-down justification of morality, from some higher-order principles, and we have just derailed the conversation by saying that no such justification exists. The bottom-up explanation is also suspiciously circular, and, of course, circularity is a dirty accusation in analytic philosophy. We seem to be saying, norms are justifiable if they work and they work if they are useful and beneficial. The mere fact that a norm is used means that it is useful, and therefore justifiable. Does this not just commit the naturalistic fallacy all over again, by saying it happens, therefore it should happen? In an extreme case, some norm that allowed the king to decapitate all dissidents would certainly be effective in quashing protest. So, is this norm useful and justifiable in maintaining harmony? Here comes the endlessly tricky matter of parsing the competing ethical narratives. The bad news is, morality is just a human narrative. Norms are simply evolutionary mechanisms, and so no ultimate or abstract justification is available. The case for one specific norm over another cannot be conclusively determined in a way that rules out all decapitations by kings for all times. The good news is, very few aspects of human life are candidates for being determined or formalised in this way, so we should not expect morality to be any different. Norms arise contingently on the basis of real terrestrial conditions, and so the merit of individual norms will always depend and change, contingent upon changes in terrestrial conditions. Robust moral arguments must look to pragmatic considerations, brains and nervous systems and social structures and facets of the ecosystem. And moral reasoning must always be updated, subject to review, since terrestrial conditions are always changing. There are three reasons why I don't eat meat. Meat production standards and the environment 
and my own health. But none of these three rationales would stand if I was living 20,000 years ago as a hunter-gatherer before the agricultural revolution. If I hunted and ate individual animals with my tribe, there would not be any meat factory cruelty, or massive climate effects, or power to significantly alter my own diet. And I can quite honestly imagine a set of future conditions which would make it justifiable for me to eat meat again. I'm simply abstaining from meat on present contingent grounds. Earth's geography and ecosystem is dynamical, and accordingly, our morality must be dynamical. The even better news is, and this is where the optimism enters, having a non-fixed morality means that we are free. Who are the pessimistic nihilists who would prefer some fixed prescriptive morality to be imposed from the outside. Is that alternative really better? As optimistic nihilists, we can recognise that we are not bound by bad moral ideas. Anything that we view as reprehensible, like decapitations by kings, or battery farming, or deforestation, it's all open for review. Moreover, as we are reminded by the Spider-Man adage, with great power comes great responsibility. When viewed optimistically, our nihilistic freedom empowers us to take authority for moral outcomes. All faults and transgressions flow from us, here on Earth, as do all potentials for compassion. There is nothing more demotivating than the idea of fate and astrology. If meaning and morality is externally prescribed, then why the hell should we bother getting off the couch, since all outcomes would be externally dictated? My proposal is diametrically opposed, the exact opposite. There is nothing externally dictated, so getting off the couch makes all the difference in the world. So to recap, when we say reality is meaningless, but that's kind of a nice thing, this involves two steps. Step one, nihilism, as in reality is meaningless. Step two, optimism, as in that's kind of a nice thing. The thrust of step two is really in justifying optimistic nihilism over pessimistic nihilism, or over apathetic nihilism, or whatever else. I've gone to some lengths to analyse the genre of argument used in step two and it is by definition not necessary or conclusive. The argument that we ought to be optimists does not trickle down from higher principles, and cannot be plucked from the descriptive state of the world as it happens to be. I can only hope that I provided some general inspiration to take up the optimism outlook over competing outlooks of pessimism or despair. All of our best science, increasingly, points to the fact that the universe is incredibly huge and human beings are incredibly small. The evidence from evolutionary biology shows that we are wrapped up with the whole ecosystem through a very long evolutionary history. Our species has cousins in chimpanzees and bonobos, and facts about our hands and eyes and social structures mirrors the counterparts in other species, albeit with increased complexity. The histories of the plants and insects that surround us are also intrinsically tied to our own history. Our species grew up 
eating those starchy roots and oily seeds from trees pollinated by droves of tiny insects. It has become trite to remind people how much we depend on bees to pollinate our crops, but this should make us feel a certain mutualism and ethical interrelatedness. Our duty is not to protect the constitution and appearance of plants for all time, you know, freezing them at this one contingent stage of evolution, by keeping almonds bitter and poisonous, and so on. We can still engineer new strains of giant plums and new varieties of chihuahua, taking shortcuts to places that evolution might never have led in the specific history of our planet. But we must at least have some wider duty to engage ethically with the whole ecosystem. When we do bring new dogs into the world, we must take into account their brains and nervous systems and diets and capacities for flourishing and suffering. We might revise our decision to bring pugs into the world, since there is evidence that they suffer from many health problems, and perhaps the moral and compassionate outcome might be for pugs to cease existing as a breed. At the higher scales of intelligence, chimpanzees and orangutans have been documented as having group traditions similar to cultural traditions in humans, so we might have a rather great moral duty to protect those animals and those cultures, since community-wide deaths of chimps might amount to eradication of unique traditions and cultures. When we visualise our planetary isolation, this should focus our attention on the terrestrial realities of life on Earth. A solar system teeming with life would be rather distracting, but we are happily free from such distractions. We are discharged from all non-terrestrial demands and reminded that it is just us, all wrapped up and bound together and marooned on this rather lush rock. The fact that we are alone together might rationally create a strong incentive for us to look after one another, because no one else will. But I can't tell you what to do. Nihilism means that no one can tell you what to do. We are radically liberated to do whatever the fuck we want, so perhaps we should all agree to do something good and worthwhile, something of fleeting and terrestrial value. The very last thing I want to say involves a short reflection on the philosophy of love. I've been thinking about this topic for a while, and I get the feeling that there might soon be a full episode on the topic, sometime in 2021. I want to respond to a quote by Ruben Nielsen. Ruben is the lead singer and songwriter with the band Unknown Mortal Orchestra, and he was interviewed on the podcast Song Exploder. Ruben breaks down his song Multilove, which is a great song, and touches on some slightly cheesy philosophy of love. What is this multi-love that Ruben is singing about? What is he getting at? Well, Ruben says, quote, If we were to evolve beyond the specifics of the organisms that we inhabit, then we would probably still need love. Love would still be a useful concept. End quote. In my view, this is exactly wrong. Love is entirely specific to the organisms that we inhabit, and that's what makes it special. The fact that it is so necessarily earthly and contingent, yet still feels so amazing. And ostensibly, there's nothing whatsoever special about it. 
that's the special thing about it. Experiencing love in an atheistic world is truly awe-inspiring. Let that be your inspiration for an optimistic outlook on reality and earthly existence. You've been listening to Extrapolator, hosted by me, Jeff Allen. That's the end of season one, my solo run of eight episodes, which set out my philosophical program around knowledge, truth, philosophy of mind, animals, AI, meaning, religion, and many topics besides. The Extrapolator podcast will be taking a break, but if all goes according to plan, it will return, this time in an interview format. I've pontificated for long enough, and I now want to discuss and defend and develop my ideas in conversation with others. And in fairness, I need to take a bit of a break. This podcast started as my 2020 lockdown project, and it's very close to my heart, but it was a time-consuming endeavour. I approached Extrapolator in a slightly different way to most podcasters, taking a lot of time and care to research and write my ideas, rather than speaking off the top of my head. I hope that has resulted in a more organised and pleasurable listening experience for you, the listener. And accordingly, I hope that you found these episodes to be organised and insightful and valuable. In a rare disclosure from behind the scenes, I can reveal that the script or combined text from these eight episodes came to 50,000 words. That's the same length as a short book. I really didn't expect to write such a large quantity, and yet here we are. States of flow often produce such surprises. In my experience, achieving a state of flow when writing philosophy or music is one of the most deeply satisfying experiences that leaves me with a true and honest feeling of time well spent. I'm glad to have found suitable inspiration with Extrapolator and achieved flow at many times during the process. Aside from podcasting, my main project for the current year is a master thesis with the title Egocentrism and Realism, a neurophilosophical defense of the mind-independent world. I'll keep you posted on my progress. In the end, this academic thesis has to be about 30,000 words, but this prospect already seems far less daunting, since I've already produced that many words and then some for Extrapolator so far. For many reasons, I'm very glad that I embarked on this podcast project. So for now, it is goodbye. My final thanks to Hugh Allen, aka The Other Twin, for creating the Extrapolator artwork. And I wanted to remind you where you can find more Extrapolator content online. I've published a full reading list for the whole season at jeffallenwriting.wordpress.com. I've also published the Extrapolator music on Spotify and other popular streaming platforms. Writing and recording the music for Extrapolator was a lot of fun. I wanted to have a go at writing jingles and theme music for almost as long as I've wanted to make a podcast. You can find the whole album if you search for Extrapolator, original podcast soundtrack on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, or any major platform. The main theme is titled Entry Music for a Podcast, and the exit theme for this episode is titled Optimism Slash Cohate. 
I thought that a fun and uplifting piece would be the best way to convey my fun and uplifting outlook on the meaninglessness of reality. It's all about optimism. If you've been enjoying the Extrapolator podcast, please leave a review or share it online or simply tell a friend. You can find us on all the major podcast streaming services and on Instagram at ExtrapolatorPod. Podcast reach is all about momentum and I'd be grateful if you were part of that effort to spread the podcast further. I sincerely hope that I've given you plenty of food for thought and perhaps persuaded you to see the universe with an optimistic nihilism. Time and time again, when I think about these scientific facts, facts about human beings and biological life on Earth, I am reminded that we, as part of that biological ecosystem, are staggeringly unique and alone. Life is incredibly improbable. Therefore, life, for you and I, is rather wonderful. Wonderful.